Morning. There, this works. Good. My chains have been set free. (laughs) I was looking forward to having a cordless mic again, and Don made it happen, or whoever made it happen. All right, we are continuing in our series in the Psalms, and I uh, would invite you to turn to Psalm 7 this morning. I was starting to wonder, it was, I'll take the blame, it was kind of my idea to go through 10 Psalms for the summer, because as you all know, people are coming and going, and we're Lots of familiar faces are missing, but then there's new people coming, and, which is wonderful. Uh, and psalms aren't one long, prolonged thought, so it was kind of my idea. I've seen other churches do ten psalms each summer, which is great. But about six psalms in, I was wondering, are there only three sermons in the psalms? <laughs> and, and I was starting to get a little concerned about that, what I had gotten myself into. But today is something truly different. Uh, and I hope that's okay. I'm... Uh, it, the content of today is, is something we need to hear. God has put it in his word. We need to hear these words. Uh, and yet we, uh, we also understand that they are in the context of the broader scripture. But we need to let uh, this psalm do its work this morning. Uh, and we, we, we need to think then about what this is saying to us this morning. Uh, and we will deal with the other things when we get to them in the text as well. So if you're ready at Psalm 7, then out of reverence for God's word, I will ask you to stand if you are able. And we will read it. Psalm 7. A Shagion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite, Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, If there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteousness, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And may God bless the reading of his inerrant word. You may be seated. I was about three years into being a dad, maybe not quite, and we were having a a rough day in our house. And one of our children, who will remain nameless, was particularly having a rough day. And doing everything that they, (laughs) that that they were not supposed to be doing, 
Uh, and you, if you're a parent, you just know how the tension builds. And the only way out of this is going to be applying the rod of discipline to the place where God has added extra padding uh, to learn that sin hurts. And I proceeded to do that, but it was after a question of a particular thing if this child had done this thing. And they said no. And I was pretty sure they had because all the evidence was there before me. And this child of mine got a spanking. And I found out when mom got home, this person hadn't done it. Boy, talk about feeling small. You're a dad, you love your children enough to give them a spanking, and then you find out that you did it in, uh, in an unworthy way. They were not guilty of this. Yes, they were guilty of 25 other things that day, and it was building. But this actual thing... <laughs> They were wrongly accused, and I felt very, very small. And maybe you can think of something in your own life where you have been unjustly accused of something, right? And you can think of 10,000 sins in your life, things that you're actually guilty of, but then someone confronts you on this particular thing that you didn't actually do. Uh, It doesn't feel good to be wrongfully accused. And probably we've all heard stories of people who were in prison for many years, and then some kind of modern evidence, DNA evidence, or something has come out and and proven that that person was unjustly in prison. And you think, what a shame, What what a terrible tragedy that someone has just spent 20 years behind bars for no good reason. We don't want to be Uh, unjustly charged with things, nor should we be. That is a real injustice. And it shows one of the limitations of human justice is that we don't see everything like God sees it. And so we are sometimes the victim of unfair judgment, and sometimes we are the perpetrators of unfair judgment. And that is, to a large degree, what David uh, is talking about this morning in Psalm 7. As Christians... We should be the first to acknowledge that we are in our natures sinful and we are dependent on the grace of God. And we've seen this lots through the Psalms already. Nobody, if you are a Christian, nobody should want what is fair from God. If we got what was fair from God, it would be instant death and eternal hell with no chance whatsoever of redemption. We do not want what's fair. We want what is merciful. We want grace. We do not want what is fair. And sometimes we... uh, we look so much at the, the depravity of people that we, I think we sometimes fail to make certain distinctions. And I want to make a few distinctions this morning because it's careful the way we uh, think through certain things, that we don't get lopsided concepts or that we fail to balance one truth with another truth. Uh, but one of the ways we talk about human sinfulness after the fall is with the term total depravity. Okay? Uh, and I will be the first to say I wholeheartedly, full-throatedly affirm what total depravity teaches. Total depravity teaches that after the fall of our first parents in the garden, after Adam and Eve first sinned, and they were the representatives of all humanity, when they sinned, everyone in this room was there with them sinning. Okay? They represented all of us. We all sinned. Every person in this room, every baby yet to be born, was present in Adam and Eve as they sinned. It's like a sourdough starter, right? You, you start it from one loaf and it, it, it breeds another lump. Uh, we are all connected that way covenantally through our first parents. And total depravity teaches that every part of man and woman is corrupted. So our bodies decay because of sin in the world. We do sinful things because there is sin in the world. Uh, and maybe most controversially, but absolutely true to the scriptures, is even our wills are corrupted by the fall. We want the wrong things. 
That's part of what it means to be a fallen creature. We want the wrong things, we do the wrong things, and we see corruption in our bodies and all the way around creation because sin has cursed this planet. So when we talk about total depravity, what we're saying is that the whole of our person is affected. Our will, our mind, our our thoughts, our affections, our physical bodies. What we're not saying is that every person is as bad as they possibly could be. We're not talking about utter depravity. Okay? Uh, in the mercy of God, even the worst despots and tyrants in the world have been restrained. Okay? Uh, so we're not talking about utter depravity. We're not saying everyone is doing everything as sinful as they possibly could be. We're saying the total person is affected by sin. There's no part of you uh, that remains neutral or that remains righteous. Okay? So we don't mean utter depravity. Sinful people can, in fact, do things that are not necessarily in themselves sinful. And this is an important distinction as we work through the psalm. So the main theme that we're going to see in here, in chapter 7, is that God indeed is a righteous judge. And this means that we can trust his judgments in all things. We can throw ourselves to his mercy because he sees all things and nothing escapes uh, his righteous judgment. The psalm opens saying it's a Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Well, the first question you probably have is what's a Shigayon? And it is most likely a a, a kind of a wandering uh, psalm or poem in different parts. Um... It's usually bad when I think of things off the top of my head. But if you've listened to Bohemian Rhapsody, there's three parts, right? And it it changes quite abruptly. Uh, And so this would be like that. It changes gears. Uh, There's several different kind of wandering thoughts as you go through this psalm. Uh, That is what a Shigayon is. There's distinct parts, distinct movements, a distinct progression of thoughts. And the occasion for writing this happens to be, and it says right in in the heading here, that it was the words of Cush, a Benjaminite, And we don't know anything about this man other than he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. That's what it means to be a Benjaminite. And we know that King David is from the tribe of Judah. And so these two men, in in one sense, are very similar and in another sense quite different. Right? uh, There's connection and there's a lack of connection. You might think of how this works. Think if you go to Florida on holidays uh, and you meet someone from Toronto when you're in Orlando, it feels like there's a connection. Right? Uh, Well, it's a fellow Canadian. Right? And when you're, in Toronto, when you're in Florida, even Toronto feels like it might be a part of Canada. But when you get home, you suddenly realize how different things are, right? When we're back home, well, now Toronto's in a different kind of universe than rural southeastern Manitoba, right? So when we're home, when we're close up, we feel lots of distance, lots of separation. But when we're far away in a different context, it feels like we're, we're friends, right? You can be friends when you're in Florida because we're both Canadians after all. And so that's how it would have worked for these Israelites from different tribes. Yes, they're all connected. Yes, they're all Israelites, but they're from different tribes. And so there's different rivalries and different uh, customs that no doubt would have taken place, different identities, even though they are all uh, Israelites. So David and Cush are both Israelites. They are both the sons of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in this sense, they have much in common. Yet David, being from Judah, and Cush being from Benjamin, or Benjamin, means there is distance between them. And the distance is no doubt pronounced, and this seems to be the context here, this, uh, the separation is no doubt enhanced or made more intense by the fact that the, the throne of Israel transfers from Saul to David. 
and Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? So the throne of Israel goes from Benjamin's sons to Judah's sons, and now this rivalry will really heat up. Right? Now Benjamin has lost something that Judah has. Okay? Uh, and so there will be a certain rivalry and animosity between these people because the throne was taken from one tribe and given to another. And then the opening verses are all too familiar. We've seen this lots as we've worked through the Psalms. David is being pursued, and he takes refuge in God for his deliverance. And there is the threat of his enemies all around him, the fear that they might overtake him and destroy him. And then we move into verse 3 and 5. It says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust, Selah. So here we see a bit more context of what is happening between these two men. David evidently has been falsely accused of, by Cush, who was from the same tribe as Saul. So it seems that this rivalry is now appearing in unjust accusations of things that David did not, in fact, do. And most likely, this is motivated, at least in part, by jealousy and resentment for the way God has dealt with Saul and with David. And David is pleading his innocence before God here. He truly was innocent. And he's happy to say, you notice how he doesn't say that this is a disproportionate uh, punishment if he has done these things. He's not saying, well, this is, uh, you know, the, 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 the punishment doesn't fit the crime. That's not what he's saying at all. The punishment would fit the crime if he was guilty of these things. He's saying, I'm not guilty. I never did the things that I'm being accused of doing. And that is the basis to his appeal for God's righteousness. He's not saying this would be, you know, this is far too drastic for this little crime that I may have committed. Uh, And so uh, for that reason, stop it. He's saying, I'm innocent. I didn't do the things I'm being accused of. And if I would, I would happily take the punishment because I'd actually deserve it. And you might uh, recall Paul's words before the trial. He says, if I've done anything deserving of death, let them kill me. Right? But he's not saying that, uh, that justice doesn't exist in the universe. He's saying, I didn't do this thing that you have accused me of. And we've seen some of David's most glaring sins. He was, in fact, a sinful man. Right? We, we've seen how he committed adultery and then how he committed murder to cover up the adultery. He was a very weak father. He had no control in his household. His children descended into uh, incestuous rape and civil war. We've seen that as we've worked through these psalms. So he was by no means an innocent man. He was a guilty sinner. He was a, a bad man in many ways, and yet in other ways, a man after God's own heart. His sins are glaring, But when it comes to the matter of Saul and the transfer of kingship in the kingdom of Israel, he is, in fact, innocent. He is uh, not guilty. And the Bible shows repeatedly how David acted honorably and righteously in the matter of Saul. And if you recall, we'll do a little bit of backtracking here so you remember where we are in the story. You remember Saul was Israel's first king. Uh, and after one battle, he's promised, or he's told, wait for Samuel to show up to offer the sacrifices, because a king is not uh, to be the head of the worship. Wait for Samuel to show up to give these offerings after this battle is won. And after the battle is won, they're waiting for Samuel, and Samuel's not showing up, and David's looking, or Saul's looking at his clock, and the people start to lose focus, and they start to wander off. And so David makes a... Er, Saul... <laughs> makes a pragmatic decision to just say, well, I'll just take care of the sacrifices myself. Samuel shows up and looks at him and says, Saul, what have you done? 
You have no permission to touch these sacrifices. You're a king, not a priest. And this very day, God has torn the kingdom of Israel out of your hands. You have disobeyed the Lord. The kingdom is gone, and God will give it to another, who we know, of course, as David. But that's not where the complexity ends. Because we also know David had married Saul's daughter, Michal. Right? So Saul is also his father-in-law. And they have a very rocky relationship, these two. Uh, after David kills Goliath, and the people are singing. You remember what they're singing? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Right? So even when David is just a boy, the people love him more than they love Saul. And Saul is jealous. And Saul gets angry at David lots. And Saul is tormented, it says in Samuel, that he's tormented by an evil spirit. Okay, so he's tormented. In one sense, the kingdom has been ripped out of his hand. In another sense, he's still sitting on the throne. He's tormented by these evil spirits. And what's the only thing that can calm him down? It's his son-in-law coming to play the harp for him. And, and it's so rocky because these two men, there's kind of a love for each other and a need for each other, and yet they, they're at war. Let's be honest. They're at war with each other. And they have a daughter and a wife in common. So this is a really rocky, really complex situation. But despite that, even after David finds out that he is going to be the king after God is done with Saul, David still respects the fact that Saul is on the throne. He doesn't try to speed God's hand, right? And we all know those stories in the Bible where God seems slow to do something, and so people just take something into their own hands and make it far worse than it needed to be. Right? Uh, God has uh, promised a child to Abram and Sarah. It's not happening fast enough. So Abram takes matters into his own hands and makes things uh, a hash. Right? He, he does this because he's uh, impatient. He wants to speed things up. David doesn't do that. David trusts in God's timing in all of this as he waits and sits uh, and gets unjustly charged with all kinds of things. And there's even an attempt at David's life. Saul throws a, a spear at him in one instance. And... God provides providentially many occasions in which David could just kill Saul. He would have made it easy for David to move the story along a little faster because God is moving too slow. In 1 Samuel 24, you probably all remember the story from Sunday school, uh, where David and his men are hiding in a cave and Saul comes in to relieve himself and he's right there. And David could just take his sword and just thrust him through and that would be it. No one would know hidden in a cave. And what does he do? He cuts off a little piece of his robe and he saves it for later. So he can show Saul, I'm not trying to kill you. Look, I could have done this when you were in the cave and I didn't do it. I spared your life because the time is not yet. There's another episode in 1 Samuel 26 where we read that uh, David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me to to the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake 
for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So whatever David's sin, whatever his faults with Bathsheba and with Uriah and with his own inability to rule his family well, when it comes to his treatment of Saul, David actually has integrity. He actually is sinless. He's actually trusting in the Lord's promises and in the Lord's good timing. So looking again here at verse 4, David has not repaid his friend with evil. He has not plundered his enemy without cause. And so the accusations of Cush the Benjaminite are false. David is innocent. And then we read on in verses 6 and 7. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. So because David is innocent in this manner, the sin doesn't lie with him, but the sin is in the hands of his accusers. Those, who, those are sinning who are telling lies about what David has done. And he is making his appeal to the highest court of all. There's a court that's higher than the Supreme Court of any nation, and that is God's court. And that is to where David is appealing. This is where God knows all, sees all, and will bring about perfect justice in the end. And so that is why we see David asking the Lord to rise up in his anger. David's not scared of God's anger in this situation because he's innocent in this situation. And even with his other sins, he's already been forgiven. So David has no need to fear the Lord's anger. David is now in a position as a forgiven son of God where God's anger is no longer hanging over him. He sees God's anger in a positive light. God's anger is directed not at David, but at those who are lying about David. And that's why he can make this plea. We read on, verses 8 through 11. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous God and a God who feels indignation every day. And so this section starts with an acknowledgement that God judges the peoples, plural. Uh, and I think there's important things to draw out from this. And we see this all over the scriptures, especially in an age where even many Christians have bought the lie of pluralism and secularism. Right? It's a lie. Uh, what, what we call pluralism or secularism, the Bible calls tolerance of false worship. <laughs> calls idolatry, okay? We see it as a, as a benefit in our society while we're secular. What does God call it? You're, you're refusing to put the false idols to death. That's how God sees it. All people are accountable to God. God's standards stand everywhere. And part of the problem with living in a pluralistic age and buying the lie of secularism, which is a, a devastating lie in our own time, is that we think, well, certain people are exempt from God's standards, I'm a Christian, so therefore I have submitted myself to God's standards, so they apply to me, but they don't apply out there in the real world. And that's not the way the Bible talks at all. Every knee must bow. Every tongue must confess whether they acknowledge it or not. So David sees God as a cosmic judge whether they will acknowledge him or not. <clears throat> his standards apply to all his creation. All the creation is his. It's God's world. It's God's rules. And that is just the way it is. And David also asks God to judge him, not just those who are far off, but judge me. And this might seem like an odd request, but again, because David is innocent in this matter, there's no fear of judgment. 
And in verse 8, we encounter one of those verses that shows just how important context is when we read our Bibles. Right? In verse 8, it says, uh, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Well, isn't that the most anti-gospel prayer you could pray? Judge me according to my righteousness. And when all, all this time, we spent all this time talking about the righteousness of Christ which covers us. Okay? Uh, so, so it's a contradiction, right? Let's all pack our bags and go back to Rome as we discussed this morning. Well, not so fast. Okay? Not so fast. Uh, the righteousness here actually is David's because he actually is innocent in this matter. This verse is not teaching that people can be generally righteousness or that they can stand before God's judgment uh, in whole or in part on their own merit. They can't. Okay? Again, we're depraved totally. Mind, body, soul, will, you name it. We are depraved totally. But that doesn't mean we are guilty of every single thing. And in this matter, David fears no judgment because he's not guilty. Okay? But don't take this verse to say man can stand before God on his own. He can't. So knowing the context of what's happening here, and, and you start that by realizing in the heading here that these are concerning the words of Cush. This isn't uh, a general uh, statement. This is in regards to the accusations made by Cush, the Benjaminite. So once we've seen the proper context, we see that David, as a man, is not righteous, nor does he have the kind of integrity that stands up to God's judgment. No man does, nor no woman. Rather, strictly, David is just innocent as pertains to this incident, and this uh, is important to understand, lest we do bad things with this. So David's request in verse 9 and 10 also shows a healthy disposition towards the world. He wants to see God's purposes expand in the world. He wants to see God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so therefore, he prays for an end to the evil that he sees, and for the righteousness uh, to be further established. David wants to see God's purposes manifest all through his creation, and that is a good prayer. That's how Jesus, in fact, himself taught us how to pray. And in verse 10, David sees the Lord as a shield, as a protector against the present evil in the world. And then this moves into verse 11, which is something of a jarring text, or at least it should be a jarring text. God is a righteous judge, and that is the main takeaway of this psalm. That's why I named it the sermon the way I did. But notice what it says. It says that God feels indignation every day. And if you read this in uh, some translations, from the King James, for example, it says God is angry with the wicked every day. The Hebrew word here is zayam, which means indignant, enraged, cursed, or abhorrent. Quite literally, you could say God abhors the wicked every day. He is angry all day long at the wicked. That's what this says. That's the Bible. That's God's words. We're not familiar. We're not accustomed to hearing that kind of language. But in three times, just in the Psalms, much less the New Testament, it talks about God's soul hating the evildoer. Okay? And we'll get to what does it mean that God loves everybody. But let's look at this. Let's let the weight of this passage sit on us. In Psalm 5, 6, Stu preached on a couple weeks ago. It says, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Notice it doesn't say God abhors bloodthirstiness and deceit. He abhors the man who is responsible for these things. And then in Psalm 11, 
5. It says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Okay? doesn't just say that God hates violence. God hates the man who does violence. His soul abhors him. He is angry at him. Okay? He abhors him. Let the weight of that sit before we move on. This passage needs to sit and do its work. I'm always tempted to want to say everything about everything, every sermon, so people don't misunderstand me. But we really have to let this do its work. These are God's words. God wants us to know that he is angry at people, not just at sin. Okay? God hates the man behind the sin, not just the sin. He hates the person doing it, in one sense. These are the words of God. We often talk about hating the sin and loving the sinner, And for those of us, humans, mortals, finite people who can't peer into hearts, who can't peer into minds, this is, in fact, good advice. But when we talk this way about God, as though there's never anger in God, right? We talk about things that God loves everyone unconditionally. God forgives everyone unconditionally. Think about that. If God forgave everyone unconditionally, hell would be empty, right? Everyone's just forgiven. Everyone's forgiven. It's unconditional. Everyone's in heaven. There's no judgment to fear. There is no hell because God forgives unconditionally. The Bible does not teach that God forgives unconditionally. The Bible teaches that God forgives those who come to him in repentance and faith. That is a condition. (laughs) Coming to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith is the condition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not automatic. God's judgment remains on those who don't meet this condition of coming to him. And when we talk this way, what does an unbeliever hear? An unbeliever hears, okay, good, I'm good with God. By default, we're all good with God. There's nothing for me to do. God's, you know, he just, he can't keep his hands off me and and Oprah agrees and so this must be the, this must be the message, right? I'm just a good person. God's just okay with everything. I can keep living my life of sin because God loves me unconditionally. My sins are forgiven unconditionally. I don't have to do anything. But we hopefully all know our Bibles better than to think this is true. As I said, if this were true, hell would be empty. If this were true, we would have to say that God is just as happy with Pharaoh as he is with Moses. Does that make any sense? No, it sure doesn't. We would have to say that God is just as pleased and delighted with Ahab as he is with Elijah. Also not the case. Is God just as pleased with Herod as he is with Peter? Of course not. Of course not. One is forgiven. One remains in his war against a holy God. So we have to acknowledge that there is a condition to being forgiven and accepted. And that is that we repent and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't separate, uh, when we're talking about God's judgment, we can't separate sin and sinner. What goes in hell? The sin or the sinner? Who goes into hell? The sinner goes to hell. God is angry at the sinner that is committing this sin because the sinner has not yet been removed from his sin. Okay, so when we talk about separating sin and sinner, that is true if you are a Christian. Your sin has been separated from you. But that's not an automatic transition that applies to everyone. Those who remain impenitent, those who remain in their sin, there is no separation between sin and sinner. Their sin is an accurate portrayal of what's in their heart, who they are, and their standing before God. So let's be careful when we think about some of these things, or just before we swallow uh, a common phrase just because everyone's saying it, let's think carefully about what we're actually saying here. And yet we do have to somehow harmonize this with the fact that God speaks about a general love for his creation, which is also true. And so we have to make distinctions here. 
there's two ways we can speak about God's love. And one, if you're a note taker, write this down, because these are helpful distinctions. One is that God has a love of benevolence. And this is God's general goodwill towards all his creation. Okay, even unbelievers enjoy it when a baby comes into their house. They love their children. They can enjoy a good steak. There's, it rains, it by, Jesus says it rains on the just and on the unjust. So there is a general goodwill that God has for all people, sinner and saint alike, that he has, and this is called his love of benevolence. But then there's also God's love of complacency. And this is a more specific kind of love, a saving family love that God has first for his son, Jesus Christ, and then by extension, all those who are in Christ. And this is what the Bible talks about in Christ. We've been adopted with him. We have union with Christ. And on that basis, God has a love of complacency or of good pleasure. Okay, so the love of benevolence refers to God's good will towards his creation. The love of complacency has to do with his good pleasure for his creation. He's pleased, he's delighted in his children. Okay, so we can truthfully say that in one sense, God loves all, right? He loves even the wicked. He's patient with them. He extends his hand of mercy to them, but he does not have the same pleasure with those who are outside his kingdom as he does with those who have come into his kingdom. And I know analogies are always weak. They always break down, but just think about this for yourself. If you're married or if you have children, um, I'd like to think I love women generally. I respect them. There's lots of wonderful women in my life. And yet, if there was no distinction between the way I thought women generally and my own wife, that wouldn't be a a feature. (laughs) That would be a flaw in me. Okay? Uh, I love kids. I love other people's kids. They're wonderful. But as a father, you have a special kind of uh, responsibility and care for your own children that doesn't exist for children generally. And so it is with God's love. Yes, he loves his creation in a general sense. He has a good will towards it. But there's clearly a difference when we are adopted into his family that he now becomes our father. There's a special saving kind of love that is not there for those who remain in their sin and who remain in their war against God. Okay? So the fact remains, though, that this text does teach that God feels indignation, abhorrence, anger every day. And this is not something we should be quick to put aside or to try to explain it away. If it seems jarring, that's the point. It should strike fear into the hearts of men to help them to become willing and ready to repent of sin and to be fully accepted into God's family through the forgiveness that is freely offered in the gospel. And you see this condition laid out more fully in verses 12 to 17. It says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And so you see the condition is made clear here. If a man does not repent. And then we have a picture of God readying himself to give the unrepentant sinner justice. He's readying to give himself, the sinner, what is fair. And look at this language. This is not pleasant language. God will wet his sword. Okay? That means he's sharpening it. You hear the sound of that sharpening. And if you are not in Christ, you hear that. God is getting his sword ready for you. 
He has bent his bow. There's an arrow in it, a fiery arrow, it actually says. And he is taking aim directly at the unrepentant sinner, at those who would do evil, those who would do mischief. And this arrow has fiery shafts. Let that language do its work. Yes, we know lots about the grace of God, and yes, we certainly have preached it and will preach it here again. But the grace of God always stands in proportion to what the problem is. Okay? So often, when we don't think clearly about law and gospel, what it is that, grace, uh, that makes grace so amazing, we put a little bit of law and a little bit of gospel into this blender, and we end up with this cocktail that's not really law, it's not really gospel, it's just kind of Christian moralism, it's kind of therapeutic, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's incapable of condemning anyone, and it's incapable of saving anyone. Okay? It's what one co- uh, uh, sociologist at Notre Dame called therapeutic moralistic deism. And it has infiltrated churches far more than we think. Okay? The, the law and gospel is not a cocktail that's not anything. 90-proof law, 90-proof gospel. This is the way God does it. You need to be really condemned so you can be really forgiven. Okay? The, the amazingness of grace stands in direct proportion to how big the problem is. And you see a big problem here. If the ruler of heaven and earth is sharpening his sword for you, if he's putting a fiery arrow in his bow and aiming it at you, you have a big problem, and you need an awfully big gospel to get out of that. You need amazing grace. Okay? You don't need self-help. You don't need good advice. You need good news to rescue you from that situation. And this is why I will say repeatedly, the gospel is not good advice. It is good news. You have been forgiven. Grace is amazing because the problem is amazing. And this language of weaponry here is the language that Jonathan Edwards borrowed when he preached what has often been called the most famous sermon ever preached in North American soil. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it is said that Edwards dangled his audience over the pit of hell and made them feel the intensity of it before he let up on them. People were fainting. Women were crying when he was preaching. Men were passing out because they were so overcome with the weight of God's holiness. This is what I deserve. If God gave me what is fair, he would be wetting his sword for me. That arrow was pointed right here. I need to feel that so I can be forgiven. Jesus said, who is forgiven much has much joy, right? He is, our joy is in proportion to the way we see with clarity. What do we deserve? How big is this gospel? How amazing is grace? And in the providence of God, when Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon, he was really nobody. No one really knew him. But in 1741, he preached this sermon and the Great Awakening spread like wildfire. Next thing, George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers are all over England and the New England colonies preaching because the love of their grandparents, the, 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 the Puritans that came and settled North America and that had so much impact on the Church of England, their love had grown cold. Their children were living in disobedience. And it sounds, you read accounts of what was happening in the early 1700s, it's just like us. People were delaying marriage. Boys did not want to work. There was illegitimate children everywhere. There was runaway fathers. It is said that in London, England, up to 20% of the women who lived in the inner city were involved in prostitution. And about a fifth of the brothels were committed. They specialized in girls under the age of 14. Okay? People didn't want to own property. They didn't want to work. Uh, there was public drunkenness. It sounds just like today. 
And it's this hard preaching that God used to set about a gospel renewal among the people. And when confronted with all these social ills, naturally, as you can imagine, just like in our own day, most of the ministers confronted the evil by telling everyone it's not such a big deal. They were happy to say, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Edwards wasn't willing to negotiate that way. David is not willing to negotiate that way. He's calling it straight up. Imagery, like we see in verse 12 and 13, is designed to shock, to startle, and to offend you. And feather duster preaching doesn't do this. How often do you see that soft preaching actually creates hard hearts? Tells everyone, I'm okay. Everything's okay. There's nothing to worry about. Hard preaching creates soft hearts. Hard preaching will be the jackhammer to break away at that stony heart and make peace with God. We need to let these kinds of texts do their work. So we see the nature of the unrepentant man in verses 14 and 16. So we know that the judgment that is going to fall on him is not extreme. It's not out of proportion. Another theme comes out of the conclusion here, and that is that the wicked man's mischief returns on his own head. And we've seen that lots, right? One, a, a man plots his war against God, how he is going to outmaneuver God. He's going to get away with his sin, and he never does. God puts it on his own head as he ought to. And you see this in everyday mundane things, right? Who is uniquely unable to enjoy a good glass of wine? An alcoholic. He can't enjoy it. Okay. Who is unable to enjoy healthy marital relations? The man hooked on pornography. He can't even enjoy it, right? Because he's so consumed by his sin, he can't enjoy it. Who ends up getting trapped in his own lies and deceit is the man who's perpetrating this. Okay. Who's the one that Jesus says in, in Matthew 7 is the most surprised that his self-righteousness won't let him into heaven. These people are coming to Jesus, fully convinced they're going to heaven. They say, well, look at these things we did. Look, you know, we cast out demons. We prophesied in your name. And what does Jesus say? Get away from me. I never knew you. They're appealing to their righteousness. And so the self-righteous man does have something to fear. In the Psalms, David is often the perpetrator of sin. But here we see him as the victim of the sin of others. Because David knows the joy of repentance and of having his sins forgiven, of tasting the amazing grace, we see that David is praising God for his never-ending mercy. David's opponents don't know the joy of that repentance, but here we see David giving praise to God for his righteousness. And this should help us to refocus some of our own questions as well. Right? We talked about last week, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And if you're a Christian with a biblical view of man, that's not actually a problem because you know that there are no good people for bad things to happen to. Okay? That only happened once and he signed up for it because it was God himself who did it. Okay? Bad things have never happened to good people. And here we might be tempted to reframe our question. Instead of asking, how could a gracious, a gracious God send anyone to hell? Maybe we ought to ask, how could a righteous God permit anyone in his presence? Why is that not the dilemma we struggle with? If God is so holy, how could he let anyone in? That's the problem we need to struggle with. That's the problem we need to wrestle with. God, how could you do this? Think of all the things I've done to you and you're still going to let me in? This isn't right. That's what ought to be consuming your mind at night. Let's work on that. The psalm closes with David praising God. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. 
That's where we start and that's where we end. The glory of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God. Okay? We live for his glory. We exist for his glory. We need to see it in everything. So we've learned David's turmoil. How do we make this real in our own lives? What are you going to do the next time people sin against you? How often do we feel the desire to get our own pound of flesh and vengeance and avenge ourselves rather than leaving it to God? Maybe we're tempted to always make sure to defend ourselves so that everyone knows that we're right. And the gospel frees us to say, you know what, we don't always have to. Some things only God understands. If we know we're innocent, God knows we're innocent, or if we're not innocent but we're forgiven, that's between us and God. We don't need to make all kinds of excuses for ourselves. Delayed justice may cause the unrighteous to speed things along, make it happen faster, and invariably make it worse. But for those of us whose sins have been forgiven, who are accepted with God, we don't need to see justice happening fast. Our appeal is not ultimately to human authorities or to temporal judgments, but to the court of heaven itself, where everything is made right. And we know that no event, no sin, no person escapes God's gaze. If we have the forgiveness and the favor of God, we can have peace, even if people don't understand us. We can have peace with God, and we don't need to try to destroy our opponents. We leave it to God. And when he takes our requests to destroy evil, he will do it his way and in his time. And we have to be careful to not have a Jonah-like attitude in those situations. And it could be that the person that is most antagonizing you this week, maybe tomorrow they'll be saved and you're part of the same family. What are you going to do then? Maybe they already have been forgiven. Maybe they're already part of the same family as you. Maybe their sins have been forgiven. And maybe they're just immature and they need grace and they need patience. Maybe you're the one who needs grace and patience because you're immature. Okay, we need to leave these things with God whose judgment is perfect. It is difficult to endure the sins and the accusations of others, especially when they're false. It's not fun to be slandered. It's not fun to be misunderstood. And it's not fun to be taken advantage of. And if returning good for evil was natural to us, we wouldn't need so much instruction on how to do it and that we need to do it. But we need to really trust, as David did, in the judgment of God. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is him to repay. And we have to resist the urge for us to take that job description from God. And if this is difficult, and it is, we need to remind ourselves of all we have been forgiven. How different would your life look if your sins were not forgiven? And then we need to be ready and willing and eager to extend that same grace to others. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your holiness. Lord, forgive us when we treat your grace as though it's cheap instead of free. Lord, we know that your standards stand. They are unwavering. And when we try to break your law, it's not your laws that break, but it's us who break against them. Lord, I pray that each one here would feel the weight of what it is that we have broken your law that we would put the amazing back into grace, that we would see how big, how severe the problem of your anger at sin and at sinners really is. And that rather than causing despair, that would cause us to turn, to come to see you, to be dressed in your righteousness, to be forgiven and to have the peace 
that knows that once you have buried a sin, no one can ever bring it up again. It is far from the east as from the west. Lord, I pray that each one here would know the joy of that. I pray that we would not see that your righteousness or your holiness is something we need to be ashamed of or something that we need to explain away or something that we need to negotiate in order to make you more palatable. Lord, this is who you are. You have told us you are this way. Forgive us when we don't take you seriously. Forgive us when we put our ideas ahead of what you say about yourself. Lord, give us hearts, give us minds, eyes, ears that we need to embrace this truth and to see all the more how glorious, how powerful, and how potent your gospel is to save to the uttermost. Lord, we pray that you would put an end to evil in our lives and in this world, that we would see your purposes advance that we would see your will being done here as it is on heaven. Lord, and I pray that each one here would be part of that process. Commit this into your hands, and I pray that you'd be with us all as we go out into the week. Help us to live for your glory, to remember who you are. I pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> the charge is this. We live in a world that has been made complex by the fall. What makes this complexity even more difficult to think through is that we ourselves are sometimes the doers of sin and sometimes the victims of the sins of others. The answer for our sin as well as the sins of our neighbors is the same, the righteousness of God. All sin will ultimately be answered for, either by the sinner in hell forever and yet never being able to pay off what he owes, or it has been answered in Christ once and for all. God is slow to anger so that those with spiritual ears have time to repent and enter his kingdom. And yet he is slow to anger, so that all those who refuse to hear will see that they cannot escape forever. If you have not repented of your sin, he has readied his bow. It is bent and taking direct aim at you. Yet he has provided you a way out. Repent and trust the Lord Jesus. He has taken the fiery arrows for all those who come to him. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And men with a free conscience are also free from bitterness, from anger, and from the vengeful desire to take God's justice into our own hands. So this week, enjoy freedom. Enjoy peace. Enjoy the righteousness of God. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And I'll leave you with a benediction from Ephesians 6, 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And please go in peace.